All right, everyone out there who's stock rich and cash poor, what if you could generate liquidity from your private company shares without giving away the upside? Well, SharesPost is now offering loans against private company shares and loans to exercise stock options. SharesPost Lending, the new liquidity solution. Visit SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, Netflix soars to new highs, Twitter loses its COO, record VC funding, and Lyft makes a mistake. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof, joined by my colleague, Matthew Lindley. Hello. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief, Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And our special guest today is Sarah Tavel, who's a general partner at Benchmark. Hello, hello. We've mentioned Benchmark a few times on the show for a lawsuit she can't discuss. We're not talking about that company this time. <laughs> the company that shall not be named. That company. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, yeah, so, uh, well, you wrote a story this week on, on, on Netflix. Yeah, Netflix is big. Wait, really? Really big. <laughs> They've actually almost doubled in the past year. I was looking at their stock chart, and yeah, sure enough, they've almost doubled. That's pretty impressive. They now have a market cap of, of $117 billion at the time of, of recording of this podcast, of, but by the time you're listening to it, who knows? Yeah, so once again, Netflix uh, kind of dropped a hammer on any pretty much all of everything that we expected, which I don't know. I kind of feel like Netflix is like the new sandbagging company mm-hmm. where they just like way, way, way lowball their estimates. That or they just they just know. keep on crushing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That or the, well, that's the optimistic viewpoint of it, right? Um, so, uh, but Netflix is like one of those companies where. Uh, Against all odds, no one really pays attention to the financials, and they only look at the subscriber numbers, right? It's kind of so, true. Yeah, it's not kind of. It's not kind of true. Um, That's like every every startup's dream here. Yeah. <laughs> be like, oh, we don't have to focus on our unit economics; just well, focus on user growth. Amazon's trained them, right? Yeah. Like, I, mean, <laughs> I think Amazon and Netflix are the only public companies that get valued like 2014 private unicorns, and somehow they still get away with it, and it's hilarious. Hey. I mean, it's also the only company. I mean, look at when after the remember the Quickster thing that happened in 2011, it's grown. I think the stock price has grown about 26x since then. So it's also been a pretty good pretty good investment. I We have a stock chart pulled up right now in the studio, and it's gone actually parabolic since 2011, <laughs> to the point in which um, I was actually not, I didn't think it was that overvalued, but now I'm kind of terrified. But Lindley, walk us through the numbers. Why did this quarter do so well? So uh, let's see. Let me look at. Let me pull this up right now. So Netflix added 1.98 million U.S. subscribers, which you know we constantly kind of scratch our heads. It's just like, wait, Netflix isn't fully saturated in the U.S. What? Like, apparently not. No, they're still I fighting people. I unsubscribed. They still fighting people. Years back. So, um, and uh, they added about uh, six million uh, international subscribers. Um, more than six million international subscribers, and of course they're spending a gajillion dollars on content. But here's so here I want to go around the table really fast. Um, what was the last show you watched on Netflix? Well, Katie doesn't count because she deleted Netflix. But I'm also weird. Okay, You're, you are a bad. <laughs> you deleted. Wow, I'm a really bad. What do you What do you subscribe to instead? Uh, Hulu. I don't know. I mean, I, I do, I do subscribe one. to that stuff, but really I just look at everything online. It's actually kind of funny that I'm a cord cutter because I was a TV producer for several years <laughs> and um, and now I've now abandoned cable You are You are bleeding news. edge. Like you're a cord cutter, now you're a Netflix cord cutter. So. Right. Netflix. Great. Yes, I'm, I'm a double cord cutter. Yes. But, uh, um. To answer the question, though, I think uh, the last thing that I watched on Netflix that was new was the stand-ups. 
Because mm-hmm. I think it was the comedian Dion called a particularly funny set that I have been obsessed with. Okay, what was the big one that you watched in 2017? Though uh, I watched most of the Three Percent. I watched Narcos. Great show, I by the way. El Chapo. Because mm-hmm. uh, apparently I'm all about that genre. <laughs> um, I, I I watch Netflix like on purpose. Like I don't go there and like, oh God, I'm bored. Please show me something. I go there to watch a thing, and that's why for me it's a must-have. Because when I want to watch that, whatever it is, I just have to go at it. And so. what about what about you? Narcos. But it's original content. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So so around the room you know like my the the thing that i watched was like all the marvel shows defenders and all that kind of stuff right and a lot of the original content not bright uh even though they are very very bold on bright which is their like new movie movie push basically um but yeah so they're spending they they keep pushing this number up over time which is how much money they're going to spend on original content now it's up to 7.5 to 8 billion up from the last time they talked about it which was 7 to 8 billion so they're kind of like is that a one-year number yeah, yeah. They're so gonna they're spend eight billion next year on content. That's y- you're it, surprised it, by their ability for their stock to go up while spending all the dollars in the universe. Well, let me ask you a fine question: uh, Does this company still generate cash, or does it consume cash to currently fund its operations? Well, uh, isn't the notion of capitalism to reinvest your profits in in order to continue to grow? Wouldn't they have to have positive cash flow to reinvest? All right, all right. This is they're this. burning a lot of money. <laughs> thank, thank you for yes. picking up on my obvious <laughs> yes, segue. They are burning a lot. I remember the good old days when they made a profit. 2011. Yeah, 2011. <laughs> it was actually, I think they were cash flow positive just, yeah, just a few years ago. Yeah, so, so, so do you think so they're old. still going to grow? I mean, they've, they've almost doubled in the past year. I mean, is, is that trajectory going to continue? From a subscriber basis or a stock basis? Because like, stock basis. I mean, I, I, it's so hard to know. Like, with, from a subscriber basis, there's still a lot of room to grow internationally. You have to believe in that. From a stock basis, I think it's, you know, it's how long people will stomach the cash burn. Yeah. Um, and then there's also just the competitive questions, like, you know, Disney pulling out of their content. It's almost like Netflix, which unbundled cable, is now getting unbundled itself. And so we'll have to see how that continues. Just so just to touch on the cash the cash burn, they they uh, had negative free cash flow of $2 billion this year. And they said they will have uh, free cash the free cash flow this year will be between negative $3 billion and negative $4 billion. So... So they've gone from like, they're now going to like a full Tesla of, right. of net cash burn per year. <laughs> right? except, they, except we don't get cool cars out of it. We, instead, we just get great entertainment to watch late at night. Elon uh, Musk, is, please send us cars. Yes, please. We'll send them the cars. It's an arms race right now, right? For all these guys, Amazon, everybody else creating their own content. So they just have to keep on playing. And I just wonder how long it'll last. Well, I'm like value I'm, in original content. Well, I mean, we also so, have a, a podcast called Original Content here at TechCrunch that it's all about this stuff. Giving them a shout out. A yeah. multi-billion dollar burn, I assume. <laughs> I mean, the, well, the, the the one thing that I'm I'm really curious about is, uh, you know, you have Disney pulling out and and obviously they have the Marvel shows, right? Which is like huge, right? Uh, Daredevil was like a really successful show. Jessica Jones, all these other shows. Like you look at the Metacritic scores and they're, well, aside from the one that is not good. For, what is it? Iron Fist, right? That one wasn't very Oh, good. that was panned yeah, instantly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But most of them are great, right? Most of, most of them have really high Metacritic scores. They're really popular, so on and so forth. So Disney, you know, you know, Disney may, may start pulling out and have, you know, have ownership of that stuff. And they have ESPN. So now imagine like you have this like Frankenstein monster that has NBA and college basketball and college football and and baseball and all these other things along with Marvel shows. And now like, I mean, I don't know about everyone else, but I'm like, holy crap. Okay, well, those are two very good things in a single package. Not saying that they will do that, but those are two very good things in a single package. 
But it is so interesting what's happened, which is, you know, Netflix was disruptive because they created a better experience for consumers and they did it cheaper than Blockbuster and then cable, right? And now we've gone back to a place where instead of, you know, being able to cancel your $50 cable subscription and get a $10 Netflix subscription, you've got $10 on Netflix, you know, you have Amazon Prime, you've got Hulu, you've got soon Disney, and basically people are back to spending as much money on like on their media consumption that they were paying before they got cable got unbundled. Right, um, but if all technology is just unbundling and rebundling, yep. there will be a new consumer service out in the next five years that bundles all of those now unbundled individual services into one bundle that we will all right. then buy. That's and then the that question. Will yeah, cut apart again. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, some some there's some consolidation, but there's pretty big numbers at this point. A bundle within a bundle within a bundle within a bundle. It's a kind of a meta bundle, if you will. But one thing to keep in mind is that uh, the current PE ratio of Netflix is 215, um, which I believe is quite high. And uh, just throwing that out there, so there's a lot of optimism baked into this, and that is why Netflix is worth so much. So when we talk about it being a bit unacquirable at 116, 117 billion dollars in value, that doesn't have to be a permanent valuation if the market turns. Yeah. And there are level of cash burn will scare investors if their growth slows a nibble. So they're really kind of racing ahead here, but it's kind of a high wire act, if you ask me. I mean, I remember like there used to be that narrative where you know should Apple buy Netflix or should Apple buy tex- Tesla or so on and so on and so forth. It's like yeah, well, <laughs> maybe it's probably not a good idea to go after Netflix at this point, given how just how freaking large that company is. But yeah, I don't see any company getting well. You have to pay what a forty percent premium probably for a public stock, so you're going to pay one hundred and fifty billion right now. For you Netflix. do stock too, though, right? You can do it, cash. You can, yeah, yeah, sure. But I mean, what company can afford that? Even Apple, that's a lot of cash in stock to drop. A company that currently just torches cash. SoftBank Vision Fund? Uh, <laughs> actually, well, now even we're... That, they, even that can't afford this. Uh, <laughs> almost, so almost. You know, you know it's they, valuable they, if SoftBank can't afford it. Already. But uh, you know where I don't watch content is Twitter. They have video on the side. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> they have video on the side. And even though I use Twitter a lot, although I've been cutting back, uh, I, I use Twitter a lot, but I haven't really been clicking on their videos. Although that is a good growth opportunity for them. But they are losing a key executive this week, Anthony Noto, who is their COO. He's he was also their CFO. He's been at the company for a while. He's leaving to be CEO of SoFi, which we've also talked about on the show because that was that the very large fintech company that had a lot of uh, drama and uh, and their CEO Mike Cagney actually had left after um, sexual harassment claims and not just with him but with the company in general. And Noto's leaving, which means Jack Dorsey is all by himself in the the upper ranks of Twitter. I mean, obviously they have other other great executives, but uh, but yeah, I mean he's he's not only on his own, but he's also running uh, Square. So he already he had his hands full running two major public companies, but now what is he going to do? I mean, obviously they're going to have to find someone to fulfill the very large shoes that Anthony Noto left. And while the stock has not done great over the past several years, when you look at it for the past year, they are actually up a bit. They, so, gave, they gave back a lot of their gains. I just had looked at the stock chart, and if you go back right before the Anthony Noto-induced drop, they were at their highest <laughs> levels since kind of early 2016. So they put up some serious points that they've now kind of seeded back, uh, which must be tough for morale over there to lose both one of your, I think, most beloved executives and one of the most critical and also have your uh, 401k fall apart. Well, <laughs> I should clarify, he was CFO at one point, and they did they did eventually 
fill the CFO role when he took on the COO as well. So they, it's not that they don't have anyone, but I mean, COO is like the number two job. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, for the the interesting there thing there is that by the end of 2017, this narrative for Twitter was like kind of turning slightly, right? Which is like, oh, they've like maybe they're starting to figure out video and maybe they're starting to figure things out a little bit and they're actually doing things, which is nice. And it turns out doing things is a good thing. Right. Um, but Noto was like the guy that engineered the original NFL deal, right? The Thursday night football deal, which was like live video. We're going to, we're going to have football Thursday night football. And they got it on the, like for absolute steal. If it's like $10 million, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And that was like, Oh wow! Like Twitter can actually be a live video service, and we're gonna stick one of the single biggest properties on t- for live video on Twitter. And now the guy that did that is not there anymore. Have you ever watched the NFL on Twitter? No. <laughs> Have you? No, I don't. <laughs> I, I mean, I like I, I, I do like watching watch it on the a Super Bowl on Twitter. Is that a thing? We have the Super Bowl coming up. I mean, is any are people gonna be like? tuned to Twitter watching it? I mean, I feel like no. That's- I'm going to be on Twitter on my phone talking smack about how the Patriots are dirty, dirty cheaters and the Eagles are going to stomp them the whole game, but I'm going to watch the actual game on my 16th. Philadelphia I'll be tweeting about three. the commercials. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not a great experience for me. Twitter, the best part of Twitter is I can do it kind of when I'm doing everything else. I'm watching a show. I can be on Twitter, whatever it is. Uh, I just don't look for that as a full body video experience. It doesn't strike me as a good fit. And, you know, Amazon bought Twitch, not really a fit so far. So I don't think putting video into everything is going to work yeah, out. Yeah, so video well. always felt to me like out of band from the consumer experience. But I mean, go SoFi. Like, it seems like a coup to me. Like, yeah. it's, um, you know, SoFi thinks of itself as, as, as more than just a lending company. And it could have been so easy for them to just fall into the trap of finding some, you know, Goldman Sachs person or some, you know, finance Wonk, who just is like a lending like guru, and here with with Noto, they found a guy who is got, got the Goldman experience, yeah, I was gonna has say. the CFO experience, and actually understands how to build a consumer brand and like manage his consumer network, and that is that is what SoFi needs in order to kind of continue the brand that it wants to wants to actually create. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, Anthony was a, a longtime Goldman guy, but then got his experience at, at Twitter. Uh, SoFi is a huge company. That's that's also a company that we think will go public at one point. Uh, the, Mike Cagney, who was the CEO, told me in three years ago now that they were about to go public. So we'll see when that happens. <laughs> that is my favorite CEO. There was a curveball. Yeah. Um, but they raised $2.2 billion. So if I ask, yeah. so that yeah. is an enormous bet from a huge number of people that they will eventually find that liquidity point. So no pressure at all on yeah. Noto to it's to a big write job. Right, that ship. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have that one. Yeah, I mean that, that's definitely a big job, and if he does it well, it'll be tremendous for his career. He'll be a superstar. I mean, he already is, but even more of a superstar. But yeah, I mean. I don't know. I'm curious to see what happens with Twitter. I think they just haven't been innovative enough. As much as I like Twitter, I'm also in the news business, and it's extremely helpful for that. But I just think for your average person, I mean, unless you're trying to, like, keep up with, like, Trump's tweets for some reason, I mean, what's your why would you be on Twitter on a regular basis? Well, it's funny. I mean, I know we're a little bit off topic, but, like, Twitter's been my favorite place on the Internet since, you know, 2008, I want to say. So it's been actually I guess about a decade now. But really, this last uh, 12 to 14 months of politics uh, kind of taking over my feed has made Twitter kind of a stressful place to go to is instead of some place that I go to to kind of find some joy and delight. And that maybe is how it should be. I mean, if the world gets more serious, we should all be more serious. But 
I, I do find it to be less of uh, something that I just kind of enjoy yeah. day to day. My my Twitter feed is is politics and cryptocurrencies, oh, and they gosh. just blend oh. together in this very strange way, and it's 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 a it's a hard it's a hard feed to look at. Yeah, that sounds about we like almost mine got as away well. With not saying but crypto. You, you, <laughs> you you have a bit of product experience yeah. on social media. You're at Pinterest. Yes. And so, what do you think about? Twitter from a product perspective. I mean, I think that the the feedback that you guys had is right, which is that they have been really slow to do things that have seemed really obvious. Um, and and part of it is, I imagine that you've, they got a very loud cohort of power users, and so anytime they do anything, it's just you know it's this huge conflagration on Twitter about the change. Like I mean, even the silly thing about how many characters you can have in in a tweet was this big <laughs> deal when it was right. just such an obvious thing for so long that it had to be done, at least to me. Oh wow! And so oh yeah, without question. See that that's so interesting to me. Like adding like unlimited ads in a tweet seemed totally fine, but actually changing the number of characters felt like a fundamental. DNA shift in the business. I think that there was a I way to <laughs> there was a way to do it from a product perspective that I actually think was a little different than how they did it, where you could have like you know you could only show a couple lines and then you could make it expand on a click, and that would have like still like, kind of preserved the experience of it being 140 characters, but then still make it easier for noobs who don't who don't use Twitter and don't understand Twitter and get, are confused by Twitter, and and that would actually really like that's that those are the people that Twitter has to go after. And and they just took way too long, I think, to go after that that group. I mean, it's pretty much just modifying a, the same idea that they've had. They've had they came up with tweets, and it's still just centered around tweets. I mean, they've added like photo and, and, and video, but for the most part, it, Twitter is the same experience than it was 10 years ago. I don't care if they change favorites yeah. from hearts to star, right. I mean, stars. I'm still mad about that. They are character like, count. The good That's news, not innovative. The that good is news, the same idea. The good news is they're doing a lot of the right things right now. It's just that you know, it's taken a little bit longer than we'd like. And and look, like there's a reason why it is Trump's microphone or <laughs> megaphone, and and so many other people's because it is this like really important network. It's also the thing I spend the most time on. So there's 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 so much potential here. Just there's just a lot of a lot of tweaks. I yeah. feel so much better having deleted it from my phone a couple months ago. Oh, is that why you're never on Twitter anymore? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I yeah. was curious if you just didn't like me or something. But no, okay. no, no. Well, I mean, it's mostly because of weird Philly Twitter, but also, but also, sorry, <laughs> sorry about the Eagles, the best Wait, team in the NFL. Why are you a Phillies fan? That that's too off topic. Sorry. I'll do that afterwards. Um, yeah. Moving along a little bit, uh, back to our main home of the venture capital world on this show. Uh, a couple of numbers for you. First of all, uh, Bloomberg published a great piece today looking at the 2017 U.S. venture capital market, uh, noting that there was about $67 billion uh, invested from VCs into startups, and uh, that that was the highest uh, number in at least a decade by a small margin beating out 2015. But the number of deals actually declined from 2015. And uh, my crew over at Crunchbase News did a, a similar sort of analysis looking at the global market, and we found that we projected about $213 billion was invested in the world last year. Um, so I feel like we've been talking about, at least among us uh, privately, when is this cycle going to kind of turn over and when are we going to see a shift in the business climate? But the 2017 numbers look incredibly strong, both domestically and internationally. 
So I'm curious, are we surprised that 2017 was so strong from a venture perspective? And then will that change in 2018? Well, I mean, Netflix is $116 billion now. So <laughs> that's actually, I mean, you joke, but that's not a bad point. Public <laughs> markets do drive uh, private investment. If there's a lot of optimism in the public markets, you can presume. Sorry to be to interrupt you. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Katie, go for it's it. It's all good. I mean, it just, the data just keeps showing that it's all about the unicorns. There's a lot of money being poured into the big companies, but actually not an increase in the number of companies being invested in and some data is showing that it's at even a decrease. So if you're a unicorn and you already have a, a lot of a lot of money, it's easy to get more money. The later stage VCs, um, obviously we have SoftBank, which has $100 billion to invest in. Well, I mean, they've already spent a lot of it, but but we you have some, some big late stage VCs like that. You also have uh, corporate venture arms picking up. There, there's a lot more money being poured into that stage but for early stage it's a it's a different story what are you seeing sarah i mean on the early stage side i mean like look like i think what you see is a lot of what we probably you guys have probably already talked about ad nauseum which is that it's really hard like the incumbents are so strong right now that it's really hard for new startups to find seams and so you definitely feel a little bit of of a slowdown in terms of Kind of the companies that are able to figure out how to break through. At the same time, like what you see happening, and I'm going to say the C word, in the cryptocurrency kind of blockchain <laughs> ecosystem, is um, is is pretty tremendous. And I think that there's just a lot of momentum there. Um, and it's a little bit kind of both carrot and stick. The stick is that you know things aren't as exciting in the non kind of crypto world. I mean, it's just, again, the incumbents are so strong. And the carrot is that this it's a fundamental disruption happening in the market, and there's a lot of momentum and just really intelligent, bright people going into the space and starting companies. And so if you inc include money going into those types of projects, you know, from professional investors, like, I think that there's a lot of momentum happening right now. How far away are we from the first, like, billion-dollar check to a crypto company? I mean... You've been reading the news, right? Like it's 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 TBD. Could happen. Could happen any day. I don't know. Like it's just. Are you hot it's on so crypto? hard to know. <laughs> it's uh, say it again. Are you hot on crypto? Am I hot on crypto? Like I am. I mean, look. Like I am. In the in the short term, yes. In the media term, I wonder about you know regulatory changes. Kind of there was a lot of irrational exuberance happening in the ICO market, and like I think that's gonna. You know, it's gonna kind of it's gonna be problematic at some point, and then long term, I'm very bullish. That seems to be kind of the consensus that everyone's like, well, right now things are a bit overheated, but in five years, blockchain tech's gonna be fantastic. I wonder if that's actually no, like I said, with a lot of respect, yeah. a bit of a cop out. Because it's far, far enough in the future that you find the optimism that it doesn't really mean but anything. But VC is always far off in the well, future. Well, but it's, You're the, never it's the Gardner term. hype cycle, right? Like it's it's not uncommon that you have this type of a pattern where there is just a lot of enthusiasm. There's you know it feels without question like we're in a bubble. I talk to I, companies that are doing token offerings all the time, and it's they're you know seed stage company raising at what I used to think of as Series C or Series D prices. Um, and that's what happens when you're in a really hot market. And I think it'll continue to be hot for the short term or even like kind of medium term. And then there'll be a rationalization. And then like the true, um, the kind of true benefits of the technology will start to show. And that's that's the bet you have to make as a VC. You're not going to have to compete with ICOs anytime soon, right? I mean, I, I mean, we already to, are, right? You, you like, think so? Yeah. I mean, to me, it just seems like if you're a VC, if you're an entrepreneur and you have your choice between money from ICO or money from benchmark, you should go with benchmark. But 
but maybe you get more money from an ICS. So is that what you're competing well, with, is that they can offer more money? I mean, it's, you can get it's, more money? It is. It really depends on, on the company. Like, I think the question will be, like, whether demand for ICOs continues in the from the sources that it's been, right? Like, it's a lot of people who have made a lot of money in in their Bitcoin, like early Bitcoin holdings or early Ethereum holdings, and they're just playing it forward. They're they're saying, hey, I won already. I'm going to continue to win, and they're using that money in, in these different ICOs. I think, and then there's a lot of people who obviously have FOMO, and they're coming into the market. Um, I don't think that's going to continue forever. And so, right, like, you know, in the last, last six months, last 12 months, VCs have been seriously competing with the ICO money because it's been so easy to to get to. But I think that increasingly, when I talk to companies, they want the partner who will help them build a company. Because guess what? Building a company is really freaking hard. And also, like these companies are networks. Like that's what a protocol is. You have to have a network of people who are participating on both sides. That's also really really hard. And so. Increasingly, you meet teams that want that help to build that, to recruit the team, to do what they need to do. Um, but you know, there's it's you're still competing with with money that has no strings attached, and and it's pretty you know set it and forget it. Is that good for the market though? Just like pure like like pure capital available whenever you want it for any idea that seems nominally good. I mean, the <laughs> the thesis is that right now we're investing in the infrastructure. And so you you like there when you think about transaction like doing a transaction on Ethereum's blockchain as an example, um, versus what it would cost to do it on AWS um, or what, you know, the QPS is for another kind of transaction network like Visa. Like we are what happens with these decentralized uh, protocols and decentralized infrastructures is so bad <laughs> relative to like it's expensive it's slow relative to like the centralized counterpart that there's just a lot of infrastructure investment that has to happen to get it's not going to get to parity there's always a trade-off but there are a lot of pieces that we need in order to be able to build anything on top of these you know these blockchains and so this this exuberance right now is creating the teams and the money that we need to build that infrastructure. And so I think that's a positive thing overall for the ecosystem. The question is like whether people will get hurt. And that's why there's these questions around regulation. Are yeah, because I'm thinking to two hurt. years from now when a lot of people realize they invested in ICOs and they're not making any money off of these ICOs, that people are going to get burned and they're not going to want to invest in more ICOs. Well, because people don't realize how hard it is to build a startup and how low the success right. rate really the is. The same thing happens. But the internet bubble, right? Like the same thing. Like we're this is you know history repeats itself, and so people still buy like in public equities, you know, even though a lot of people lost a lot of money in the crash. So people still buy houses, even though there was a sure, big crash. So like, sure, but you know. but I think there's going to have to be a lot of people who made money in ICOs as well. To, to justify it because there's been people who've made money in houses and there's been well, people who've made money in the stock market. Right, but there's so. a lot of people who've made a lot of money already in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Like, you right. know, there, sure, there are people who have made money and they'll continue to make money. Well, one thing I'm looking forward to is the Telegram ICO, which a lot of VC firms are going to take part in, a bit like the Filecoin presale before their ICO. Um, and then whoever ends up putting the most money in the Telegram ICO will probably go down as the most bullish early 2018 uh, venture capital group. And that'll be curious to see who that ends up being. But we have one more thing to talk about today, which is Lyft apparently is not quote unquote woke. 
So what the <laughs> hell is going on with that? Yeah, uh, turns out Lyft's been spying on people, which is not good. Um, we, <laughs> is it really? Uh, <laughs> both the information and then also our reporter, Josh Constein at TechCrunch, uh, had some news about Lyft looking up its employees' data. I mean, not not sorry, Lyft employees looking up customer data. So what we have been told is that Lyft employees have been able to look up anyone. Like, let's say I take Lyft and I know someone at Lyft, they can look me up and, and find out my rating. I don't even know my rating. Or they can look and see what, what passengers, what, what uh, drivers have been saying about me. They can see my phone number. Can they see where whatever. you've gone? They can see where you've gone. That's Ooh. that's our understanding. I mean, we're still getting more and more details about this, but supposedly they can look up just about anything about anyone, and including celebrities and, and well-known individuals. So privacy concerns, and oh, this sounds a lot like Uber. Wasn't Lyft supposed to be the nice guy? <laughs> well, I mean, what's what's always interesting to me about this is that you know there's a lot of a ton of money is invested in privacy and security outward facing and yet sometimes companies just forget to put the guardrails on internally and you know whether this is like sinister or curious employees kind of digging around you know i'm sure like for a company as big as google for example i'm sure someone is poking around in an unauthorized code base just for the sake of it or like out of curiosity for challenge or whatever right but uh, it's it's it strikes me as this is a situation where it seems increasingly obvious that like these companies have to also have like the internal like guardrails and the internal regulations to like not let just anyone kind of access this data, which obviously exists because it's a service that needs all this data to operate, but should be disambiguated to a point that, you know, it plugs into like an algorithm instead of like someone querying a SQL database and being like, aha, like now I know where Katie went. All right. I think that's the first time we've ever used disambiguated on the show. So five points. Did I use that right? I I don't know actually. Believe it or not. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and Sarah can't talk about this because Benchmark invested in Uber, the competitor. But I, you know, this is, doesn't look good for Lyft. But they're pretty lucky because their competitors done far worse. So uh, I guess. You know, until there's a third alternative that's even nicer, Lyft probably doesn't have to worry too much. But stop spying on people. Seriously, stop it. It's like so like, many tech companies do this, and uh, it, it's it's not okay. How do you think it was a good idea? I, mean, I really hope Lindley's right that it was just a lack of guardrails and not something more malicious. But if it is the latter category, dear God, we'll all just take the bus again. I mean, I want I want to be left alone. Is my entire point. Privacy is dead. And on that note, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. Hey.